This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Weekend Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. The weather was rough. It was mean, cold, windy, and the landing craft assault were uh, flat-bottom boats and they bounced around like a cork. That's D-Day veteran Charles Scott Brown. He is part of a unique oral history project to make sure the younger generation learns about our wars. And with all the hoopla around the legalization of recreational marijuana, it's still not easy to get medical cannabis. We'll talk about the impact on patients. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. It's the first-of-a-kind study, and it's showing promising results for Alzheimer's research. Scientists infused youthful blood plasma into elderly people with the disease. And while there were no detectable changes in memory, language, or attention, it improved their ability to perform basic tasks like paying bills and making breakfast. The results were presented at the Clinical Trials on Alzheimer's Disease annual meeting in Boston. NFL Zoomer football star Nick Bonaconti recently announced that he will leave his brain for the study of CTE, a degenerative brain disease that's been linked to head trauma. This after lashing out at the NFL for not doing enough to support research. Bonaconti is a Hall of Fame linebacker who led the Miami Dolphins in the 1970s. The 76-year-old is declining mentally. With Zoomers living longer, it's assumed their kids will become the caregivers. But in a role reversal, 98-year-old Ada Keating of England moved into a nursing home to look after her 80-year-old son, Tom. He became a resident of the Moss View Retirement Home in Liverpool in 2016, and Ada joined him after about a year when it became clear that he would require additional support. Ada says, no matter what your age... You never stop being a mom. Toronto-born philanthropist and founder of Shoppers Drug Mart, Murray Koffler, has died at the age of 93. He was a business visionary who laid the groundwork for the shopper's empire by creating a franchise system that allowed pharmacists to be owner-operators of their drugstores while receiving marketing and advertising support from the parent chain. His extensive philanthropic legacy includes the Marvell Koffler Breast Centre in Toronto and the Koffler Centre for the Arts. I'm Libby Snymer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world.
This week marked both Remembrance Day and Holocaust Education Week. As we get further away from the two world wars, the question of how to pass on this history becomes more urgent. Scott Masters, a teacher at Toronto's Crestwood Preparatory College, devised a unique solution. He's behind a widely acclaimed oral history project that pairs veterans with students who interview them and then edit, digitize, and post the material. Arielle Meyer, the granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor, interviewed 94-year-old Charles Scott Brown, a captain with the 51st Highland Division who landed on the beach at Normandy on D-Day. I started doing this project about three years ago when I first moved to Canada. Um, I took a grade 10 history class and it was actually part of the class project that we had to do an interview with somebody that we knew. So I did it on my grandma and that was in grade 10. And then since then, I've just, I've loved this project. So I've gotten involved in it as much as I can. And then I interviewed Charles Scott Brown uh, just a couple weeks ago. Charles, how did you get to be on the roster, as it were? For this project, uh, I believe uh, the teacher that started it approached the Royal Canadian Military Institute. I was in—I was on the board of directors for years, and I'm a past president. And he went down and contacted the RCMI, uh, which is an all-officers club, and uh, he started to get to know our library. We have probably one of the most famous military libraries in uh, the British Commonwealth, and. Uh, that's how we, we all came about. Ariel, what did you focus on when you met Charles Scott Brown? What did you ask him? Well, you know, we asked him kind of like the questions about pre-war life, you know, why he enlisted, and then we get into the actual war and the battles. And, you know, he mentioned that he was injured, and so we kind of had those kinds of conversations. And it was just, it was great for me to, like, get that experience, to hear somebody, especially a story like his, is so rare. You know, it's the first time I've ever heard a story about anybody who was there on D-Day and probably ever will. Charles, uh, so tell us a little bit about your experience. Um, What were you doing uh, before you enlisted and and, um, how did you find yourself on the beaches at D-Day? Well, uh, I came from a military family. My father was a professional soldier. My grandfather was a a surgeon, as they were called in those days in the Boer War. My father fought in World War I, and my grandfather. Uh, my grandfather was uh, very uh, busy in World War I and created the uh, medical hospitals that looked after soldiers that were shell-shocked in those days, uh, PTSD now, as they call it, post-traumatic stress. And uh, he believed that... Uh, if you took a soldier who is suffering from that and got him out into the quiet countryside and smell the flowers and walk around the backwoods, that uh, they could be uh, reoriented and they'd be all set to uh, go back into the line again, which they were. I was pretty well trained for a young fellow at 17 when I joined up. So I had the great pleasure of retiring at 47 with 30 years service. D-Day was, uh, was actually a day late. We were supposed to hit the beaches on the 5th, and uh, we had one day sort of as a buffer. wasn't really planned, but thank God it was there. And they couldn't take us in on our landing craft assault on the 5th of June, so everything was postponed for 24 hours. And then General Eisenhower had to make the big decision whether he was going to drop in there with about uh, 80,000 soldiers or whether he wasn't. It was scary. I was more scary of the sea than I was of the uh, the noise and the bullets. 
And I had my first casualties uh, as a platoon commander. I commanded uh, roughly 40 men. And uh, that night I had to write, uh, I had uh, one non-commissioned officer and two privates killed on that, and I had uh, four wounded. That was my necessary duty to make sure the families knew exactly what happened to their men. I was with the 51st Highland Division with the 1st Gordons. And we landed on the second wave, and we landed at about uh, 10 o'clock in the morning. And at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, we were supposed to be ready to assault the radar stations at Oosterham on Sword Beach, which is right up by the Orne River. Ariel, what was most interesting to you about this story of what happened at D-Day? I hear about Charles's story about all the other soldiers that went in to fight on D-Day, and it just reminds me of my family's history because my grandmother was a Holocaust survivor from France, and so she was liberated by people like that. And so to listen to her story and then to listen to his story is just such an amazing connection for me. And I just, I, I'm, like, astounded by the bravery, you know, that all of these men went in. They were ready to fight. They were ready for, to die for people that they didn't know and for countries, you know, that they weren't really affected by, and it was just amazing. What do you want to tell the younger generation about D-Day and the entire war? I think the biggest thing that should be told is exactly what General Eisenhower did. And when we first uh, started to hit the concentration camps, he insisted that every public relations person of the soldiers in the 21st Army Group and the Liberation Army Group of Europe got every camera and every man and every microphone they could find out to these various camps because he said, 25 years from now, some idiot's going to stand up and say this never happened. And Eisenhower was so right. The next generation really does need to listen to these stories. You know, there's such an importance of hearing the stories of these men that went through it. They saw the liberation of the camps. They saw everything that's going on. That's why I love this project so much, because we can listen to it. We can record it. You know, we can show it to our friends. We can show it to, you know, our children. And just, yeah, we have to, we have to be listening to it. We have to be aware that this happened and that this is a real thing that happened. We just we can't forget it. That was World War II Captain Charles Scott Brown and student Ariel Meyer. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up next, I speak with a licensed medical marijuana producer to find out how legalizing recreational use will affect medicinal cannabis. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. The Ontario government recently introduced legislation to regulate the sale and distribution of recreational marijuana. But advocates argue that in the rush to meet the July 2018 target for legalization, the need for medical marijuana and the push to make it more easily accessible has been ignored. I sat down with Brent Zettel, CEO of Canamed Therapeutics, a licensed producer of medical marijuana. Right now, the process is a fairly cumbersome process, and, and patients need to go to their doctor to get a prescription or a medical note. It's a pseudo-prescription. It's a time-consuming process, but it's also the paperwork is, is quite intrusive if they get a doctor who actually approves them. Now, in this country today, only about a fifth 
of the doctors are actually prescribing. And the number one complaint we still have today is the fact that the physicians are still haven't fully embraced this process and that pharmacy access isn't available to them where they traditionally would buy a medicine. Why are doctors reluctant to prescribe? Well, I think the biggest issue is because the information coming around medical cannabis hasn't really passed through all of the clinical trial normal processes of introducing a drug. And within that, you know, doctors look to the statistics and the information that's generated from clinical trials. Now, as it happens, medical cannabis has been brought forward driven usually by the court system on a compassionate basis as a constitutional challenge. And as a consequence, the policies and access to medical cannabis in a large part is ahead of a lot of clinical trials or most of the information. There, even though there's a, a plethora of science now emerging on the subject matter on an international basis, like 15,000 peer-reviewed articles in the last three years, the challenge is having that front-of-mind clinical work available for doctors. Is the bottom line on this that a lot of people who want medical marijuana can't get it? The people who really are patients, that are shy about looking at using this and the stigma attached to it and still have a condition, are finding it still a difficult to, to go and get access using the traditional healthcare system. I think that's probably the number one problem. And it's not streamlined. So as recreational marijuana comes front of mind and all the speak and all the governments, both provincially and federally, are targeting the recreational market, the conversation is being drowned out in terms of streamlining the pharmacy, the proper medical access, which I think should run at least at least in tandem to the recreational access. Because if that doesn't happen, many people are just simply going to go to the rec market looking to buy their medicine. And what would the problem be with that? Well, certainly, I mean, to getting healthcare professionals to help titrate or help dose a product. When people are looking to use a medicine, they need precision. They want to have it to treat a symptom and get on with their day. In the recreational strategy, it's more about getting to an experience, a euphoric experience. Now, the two are completely polar opposite. And in fact, the overdose response is actually getting high. And it usually to manage a symptom takes about one-tenth the amount. So a patient is really looking to find a product that can be used to manage a condition and then get on with their day. And that has to be done through precision and that has to be done through a proper dosing regime. And I think that's where... And not getting high at the same time. Not getting high. So they just just basically want to get enough to manage a symptom get on with their day. They don't want to be stoned. There was an idea floated a while back, that pharmacies should be the one to distribute medical marijuana. What happened to that? In the old regulations, there was provision for pharmacy access, and then the pharmacy association decided they didn't want to have any part of it because it wasn't enough knowledge and for all the reasons where it wasn't quite as uh, front of mind to most of Canadians. And so they took an opposing view, and as a consequence, the federal government backed away from making pharmacy access part of that set of regulations. Now there still is the provision federally to reenact that portion of it and then to say that it would certainly be then a discussion between the federal government in enacting those regulations and then having the provinces then see how they could make that happen on their side. I think a lot of pharmacists would like to distribute the marijuana. They don't seem concerned about 
those roadblocks. Especially, well, of course, they're the experts in, in drug delivery and dispensing for patients, and they're the ones who interface with the patients all the time. It's a natural fit for them to be involved. Actually, we advocated this years and years ago when we were first involved in 2000, 2001, and 2002. We advocated that pharmacies be involved in this because they should be the ones helping to guide the patients into how, what kind of dosing and, and, and patient care. But at the same time, they work in concert and partnership with their physicians. And so the two healthcare professionals in the, in the group of circle of influence and circle of care should really be having those discussions about dosing, the type, especially for the condition. The physicians, the 4,500 physicians that we have now prescribing for us, have prescribed for 168 different conditions. And within that, 57% represent things for chronic pain, and then 19% for neurological disorders like MS, and then 9% for oncological or cancer-related symptoms. And so that's why we say that this is going to have a broad reach, and it would fit in better with the healthcare professional model for helping patients get proper access. What do you want the government to do? Not to ignore the pharmacy access part and to make sure that there's some priority given to this. I mean, there's all the ambition for doing the recreational strategy, and I get it because it's a new tax revenue for both provinces and federal government. Sure, I get to understand that. But at the same time, it should be the same priority be given to a proper pharmacy access. That was Brent Zettel, CEO of Canamed Therapeutics, a licensed producer of medical marijuana. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, the Canadian folk rock star whose hit Old Man topped the charts in the 70s is another year older. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. It's time for your international arts date book tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. If you're a fan of movies by the multiple award-winning Cone Brothers, check out New York's Museum of Modern Art. Joel and Ethan Cone have created some memorable movies, including the quirky Fargo. A retrospective of the brothers' offbeat-style filmmaking runs through the end of December. During World War II, Fritzi Fritzall lied to Nazi guards about her age to avoid the gas chamber at the Auschwitz death camp. Now, her story is being told on stage using holographic images. Fritzall is one of 13 Holocaust survivors who are telling their stories in this way. They're being shown at both the Illinois Holocaust Museum and in Chicago at the Education Center. Discover a collection of iconic artworks and lesser-known pieces by Modigliani at Tate Modern in London. Trace the development of the artist's career through experimental portraits, sculptures, and nude paintings. You can also step inside the virtual reality room for a closer look at the life and creations of the groundbreaking artist. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This weekend, one of Canada's most iconic musical artists, Neil Young, is celebrating his 72nd birthday. From his early days in Buffalo, Springfield, to Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, and his time as a solo artist, it's been a long and very successful career for Mr. Young. He still lives much of his life on the road, performing all around the world, and just this week he announced he will be releasing a new album, backed by the band Promise of Real in early December. Right now, we'll travel back to 1972 and hear one of Neil's biggest hits from the album Harvest. Here is Heart of Gold. 
That was Neil Young with Heart of Gold. The Canadian singer-songwriter is celebrating his 72nd birthday this weekend. And that brings us to the end of another edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Snymer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer, Moses Snymer. Produced by Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review. Heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.